Welcome inside this midweek men's edition of the Igloo with me, Timmy Ice. You heard about what happened on the women's side, which featured a lot of interesting developments with, you know, the race for second with four teams in that cluster between two and five, which is something that we usually grow accustomed to seeing, you know, in the middle of the pack or towards the top of the Big East on the men's side. So let's fill you in on what happened over the weekend that has obviously affected, you know, bracketology standings, the conference standings, and probably even more effects with overall rankings in the AP and the USA Today poll. I mean, there's a lot, so... I'm just not going to lead you on anymore, and I'm going to just get right into it. Starting with Friday night at the Prudential Center, Seton Hall breaking out these. And just a disclaimer, I'm usually not a big fan of gray jerseys, at least from a Seton Hall perspective, because there are teams who have gone the gray route and have excelled in that, Georgetown being a great example. Seton Hall breaks out these gray uniforms, Oh my God, they were just a thing of beauty. I mean, you got the Hall script written out on the front. The numbers and the names on the back were clean. I mean, it was, I mean, I thought they were the, in terms of brand new unis, arguably the best in the conference this year. Bar none. And Seton Hall in those new jerseys, See what I did there in New Jersey? They got off to a great start. They started off on an 8-0 run, and Greg McDermott called a quick timeout. And they went on this 8-0 run in the first 2-12. And that really set the tone for the whole game because Creighton just, for some reason, couldn't recover. And Seton Hall, at... Roughly the halfway point of the first half, after Jameer Harris got a layup, it was now a 20-point game at that point. 23-3. to And at the half, Seton Hall led 37-16, which is a far cry from how the Pirates have done against Creighton over the past two years. And... Really, Seton Hall hasn't really dominated against Creighton in a game probably since 2016. When they went into Omaha, they got off to a big lead. They ended up winning by 10, but I mean, they were beating them pretty handily most of that game, and it was on Creighton versus Cancer Night. But Seton Hall, they got off to a 37-16 halftime lead, and Creighton went on this run, to get it down to 13. Started the half on a 16-8 run in the first 6:46. Kevin Willer calls timeout, wise call, and the the Hall responded. And they responded strongly, you know, they had a really well-balanced effort. They got timely plays, Alexis Yetna making Timely three-pointers. Kadari Richmond showed off his three-point shot and finished pretty strongly at the rim throughout this game. 
And the Pirates dominate Creighton, 74-55. And it was a balanced effort for Seton Hall. So, again, no Bryce Aiken, again. But I think the confidence of winning without him against Georgetown definitely played a big part in them playing better in this game. And it was Kadari Richmond who played really well. 14 points, 7 assists, 5 of 9 from the floor, and 2 for 3 from 3. For Kadari Richmond, you know, that's not that's not his thing. 3-point shooting's not his thing. But for him to go 2 of 3, pretty solid. And was 2 for 2 for the charity stripe. Jameer Harris, off the bench, really sharp. 13 points, 3 of 6 from deep. And he made a couple bombs in this game. And he was 5 for 10 from the floor. Miles Kale, 4 for 8 from the floor, 1 of 2 from 3, 12 points, 3 assists. And I DM Miles Kale like not too long ago. I'm like, yo, got to keep the headband. For some reason, I just the white with the gray, it, it looked clean. I, I'll give him that. And again, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. So, I mean, the way how well Seton Hall played in this game. You know, I'd be pushing to wear those home unis, those grays, for the rest of the year at home. And I'm hoping that they'll make those available at the bookstore. Because I'd cop one in a hurry. But Jared Roden scored 11 points, 4 of 12 from the floor, 1 of 3 from 3. And he had a big exclamation point dunk um, towards the end. Speaking of exclamation dunks, Tyree Samuel had a big one in the second half. And he had 11 points on 5 of 6 shooting in 18 minutes. Probably the best he's looked since probably four weeks prior against UConn. As for other guys, Alexis Yedna off the bench, 6 points, 8 boards, and those 6 points came from behind the arc, making two huge 3-pointers that... I know one of them, it was when Creighton was going on their run to like try to really chip into the lead, but Yedna's three was a quick silencer, which is weird saying that because it's at home. Uh, Trey Jackson only had five points. He knocked down an early three that made it eight nothing and then got a dunk. I think it made it 30 to nine at that point. But in 19 minutes, five points, five rebounds, two of seven from the floor, one of three from distance. Iko Biagu, two points, six boards, one of two from the floor, four block shots. I mean, some of the blocks he had were just absolutely nasty. As for Creighton, Ryan Hawkins, who had a 23-point, 11-rebound outing against UConn earlier in the week, he was held to 0 of 5 from the field, 0 of 3 from 3, got his only two points from the charity stripe, and Got denied a couple times by Obiagu. Alex O'Connell had 12 points, 7 boards, 5 of 12 from the floor, 2 of 6 from 3. Ryan Nemhard, 11, 5, and 5, 5 of 11 from the floor, 1 of 4 from 3. Arthur Kaluma, 9 points, 3 of 10 shooting, 0 for 3 from behind the arc, also grabbed 8 rebounds. Ryan Kalkbrenner, 6 points, 7 boards, 2 of 9 from the floor, and also knocked down a 3. And as for the bench, you know, Trey Alexander looked pretty solid in 25 minutes, scoring nine points on four or five shooting and knocked down his only three-point attempt of the game. And then they... And 
you know, Coach McDermott really didn't use a lot of other guys off the bench. He used, little used, John Christophilus, who played eight minutes and scored two points. Roddy Andronikashvili had two points because he got a layup in the second half, and then Keyshawn Fizel had two points from the free throw line. So a big win for the Pirates. They're now 5-6 and six in the league. Creighton, they fall to 500 at 5-5. Five and five. Saturday, number 12 Villanova hosting number 17 UConn. UConn got off to a quick start, but Villanova really, I mean, they pounded UConn in the first half. It was 40-26 until R.J. Cole knocked down a bomb from half court to make it 11 at the break, and that 11-point margin is what that final outcome ended up being. Villanova wins 85-74, to and a big-time breakout performance from Eric Dixon, who scored 24 points and grabbed 12 rebounds on 10 of 15 shooting, also dished out four assists. Colin Gillespie, 19 points, 6 of 13 from the floor, and 4 for 7 from 3. Worth noting, though, Gillespie looked like he rolled his ankle pretty badly towards the end in the second half. Unfortunately, I mean, I don't know what his status is going to be this week. There's a good chance he most likely won't play against St. John's in the Garden Tuesday night. And by the way, you know, Villanova was out was without Justin Moore, who also injured his ankle in practice earlier in the week. So starting in his place was Caleb Daniels, who was really good. Shockingly, didn't take a three. Was 5 of 7 from the floor, 6 of 6 from the charity stripe to finish with 16 points. Brandon Slater, with his first good outing in quite a while, 11 points, 4 of 7 from the floor, knocked down his only three-point attempt of the ball game. Jermaine Samuels, just 6 points, but he grabbed 7 boards and dished out 5 assists. And then Chris Archidiacono played 26 minutes off the bench. It was actually pretty darn good. Two for two from the floor, knocked down his only three, and was four for four from the free throw line to finish with nine points. So Little Arch, big contribution off the bench. And Villanova really shot so well. 59% from the floor, 29 for 49. And for Villanova to only take 11 three-pointers is mind-boggling. But they made six of them, which is good for 54.5%. UConn shot 50% from this game and 40% from deep, but again, they come out on the losing end. And leading the way, R.J. Cole, 25 points, which was a game high, 7 of 13 from the floor, 2 of 4 from distance. Tyrese Martin, pretty solid, 14 points, 3 boards, 3 assists, 5 of 9 from the floor, 2 for 3 from distance. Adama Sanogo also with 14 points, and he was 7 of 9 from the field. Isaiah Whaley was perfect at 3 for 3, finishing with 6 points and 5 boards. Andre Jackson was... Bad in this game. Just one point, 0 of 6 from the field, 0 of 4 from three-point land. And then off the bench, they got 9 from Jordan Hawkins, who got all 9 points from behind the arc where he was 3 for 4. Tyler Pollard just 3 points, 1 of 3 from 3, 1 of 5 overall. And Jay Gaffney just 2 points from the free throw line. So, UConn, rough week, losing back-to-back games. They fall to 6-4 and four in the league, while Villanova, they go to 10-3 and three in conference, Although it does come at a cost. 
For the first time since 2014, St. John's defeats Butler at Hinkle Fieldhouse. They barely escape with a 75-72 win. But there was a time where it looked like Butler was going to pull away and Hinkle Magic was going to take over. It was a nine-point game with 14.5 to play after Bo Hodges knocked down a big three. But St. John's roared back, and they withstood a lot of big runs from Butler. And it was a really back-and-forth, neck-and-neck kind of game in the final, really, you know, six minutes or so. Both teams exchanging leads, tying the game, so on and so forth. St. John's, they escape with a 75-72 win, their first win in Hinkle again since 2014. Julian Champagny, 21 points, 6 of 17 from the floor, but was 0 for 4 from 3. And it's wild for St. John's to win this game despite being 2 for 16 from 3 and Butler being 10 of 28. And they Butler shot better, much better. At 51.8%, St. John's not bad at 48%, but again, that three-point margin, you're thinking, there's no way St. John's wins, but they managed to do it. I mean, big reason why, St. John's, 21 of 25 from the free-throw line. Butler took just five free-throws, although they did make four of them. In the foul margin, you know, Butler committed nearly twice as many fouls, 19 to 10. As for the rest of the Red Storm, Aaron Wheeler, with 13 points on four of six shooting, five boards and a couple assists. Joel Soriano was perfect from the floor, 12 points, six of six. Pasha Alexander, 12 points, five assists, five of 11 from the floor. And I think Posh actually got hurt again. So now the question is, you know, will he be ready for Tuesday night? That remains to be seen. And then Montez Math is limited to just 16 minutes, scoring just three points. But off the bench, Dylan Adewusu came up big. Two for four from three. Seven points and four assists. They also got four points from Tariq Coburn. Two points from Isaiah Niwe. And a free throw from Omar Stanley. As for Butler, they were led by Bo Hodges who scored a game-high 22 points. Four of seven from three. Nine of 14 from the field. Bryce Enzi was pretty solid too. Seven of 11 from the floor. 14 points, 6 boards. Aaron Thompson, 9.7 assists. 9.4 boards, 7 assists. I almost said 6, like a 6, but 9 points, 4 boards, 7 assists. Got it. He was 3 for 6 from the floor, 1 of 2 from 3. Chuck Harris really struggled. 3 of 10 from the floor, 0 for 4 from 3, just 6 points. And Bryce Golden only had 3 points, and that came on a 3-ball I believe, in the second half. I'm just making sure I absolutely got it right. And it was. It was a three-pointer that put Butler up four with about eight and a half to play. And then off the bench, they got seven points from Jair Bolden, who hadn't played, you know, did not play at all against... Why am I forgetting who, who the heck Butler played yeah, they, he didn't play at Xavier. That's that's what it was. So he 
Returns against St. John's to score seven points, three of four from the field, one of two from three. Jaden Taylor was six points and was perfect from the field, two for two with all points and field goals made from behind the arc. Seamus Lukosius really struggled, though. Five points, one of five from the floor, one of four from three. So St. John's, a big win. So they lose their the home game, the only home game they had in that three games and five days stretch. They lose the home game, but they win both road games at Georgetown and at Butler to get the five and six in conference, thirteen and nine overall. Butler falls to four and eight in conference, and now under five hundred overall at eleven and twelve. Biggest surprise of the week: DePaul going into the Centos Center and upsetting number twenty-one Xavier without Javon Freeman Liberty, sixty-nine to sixty-five. You, I think you can kind of just tell Xavier maybe they were underestimating DePaul and. And the energy level for Xavier just was, wasn't was there compared to where it was before. Or where it is usually, I should, I should say. DePaul got off to a seven-point halftime lead. And, you know, there were times where, you know, Xavier was going on their runs. And they actually took the lead 37-36 with 15-47 to play. You're thinking, oh, this is the part where DePaul's going to fall apart. Well, it wasn't. And the two big reasons why, David Jones, unsurprisingly, but well, David Jones, you know, got him back on track, but overall, the big reason why they were able to bounce back and respond was Cavizier McCauley, who scored 21 points off the bench, and he made... Several big three-pointers. And DePaul staves off the Musketeers for their first win at Cintas and their first win against Xavier in the regular season since 2019. We all know they beat them in the Big East tournament in 2020. But the Blue Demons win 69-65. to Led by McCauley's 21 points, 8 of 12 from the floor, 4 of 8 from 3, and he played 28 minutes over Philmon Geberwitt, who was only limited to 19 minutes, scoring just 2 points on 1 of 5 shooting and 0 for 3 from 3. Jalen Terry, 6 of 11 from the floor, 1 of 5 from 3 to finish with 13 points, played all 40 minutes. 12 points, 8 boards from Brandon Johnson, 10 points, 8 boards from David Jones. Nick Ongenda had nine points, three block shots, and was three of seven from the floor. It had a big dunk that catapulted DePaul to a lead where it made it awfully tough for Xavier to come back. And then the only other bench points outside of McCauley came from Yorane, who had two points. As for Xavier, Paul Scruggs led the way 21 points, seven of 13 from the floor, four of eight from three. Jack Nunji, 12 points, 4 of 6 from the floor, made his only 3-point attempt, but fouled out, also grabbing 7 boards. And by the way, that 3-pointer that Nunji hit, that was at the end of the first half. That got it down from 10 to 7. Zach Fremantle, after he had a big outing against Butler earlier in the week, just 5 of 15 from the floor, 10 points, 6 boards. Colby Jones, 11 points 
on three of six shooting. Nate Johnson held scoreless. And just like Wednesday, didn't make a single field goal. And then off the bench, I mean, yes, they got eight points and five assists from Dwan Odom, and he was perfect from the field at four for four. But Adam Kunkel, I mean, you need more out of him when Nate Johnson, you know, really couldn't get it going. And Kunkel was one for three from three and just one of six from the floor. Unacceptable in a game like that where you need him to step up. So Xavier, you know, maybe should have seen the writing on the wall considering they only beat Butler by two on Wednesday. But DePaul, again, without Javon Freeman Liberty, a big win over the Musketeers. And that gets them back over 500 overall at 11 and 10. And that was just their second conference win of the year. At That puts them at two and nine. And then 15th-ranked Providence at Georgetown. Georgetown was up three at the break, 30-27. And you know, I was thinking, I'm like, you know what? Like, all right, I'm looking pretty good with this shocking pick. But then Georgetown started doing Georgetown things. And Providence, you know, once they took the lead at 37-36, just over four minutes into the second half, you could just tell, like, this is only going to get worse from here. So once that happened, it was 37-36 after that three. Actually, the Providence actually took their took the lead at 34-32 at 18.05 in the second half. Georgetown then scored four straight, and then Providence jumped back in front to make it 37-36. And from there, they outscored the Hoyas the rest of the way 34 to 16. So what was a three-point deficit turns into a 19-point blowout win for the Friars. And they actually built their lead to as big as 22 points. Providence, their 10th conference win of the year, their 20th overall. As they went 71 to 52, outscoring the Hoyas 44-22 in the second half. And how about a Again, the career performance for Jared Bynum. 32 points, 11 of 15 from the floor, and 7 of 8 from 3. And by the way, Bynum last year, his 3-point percentage was 11.9%. And he went 7 for 8 in this game. That's bonkers. And then they got, the Friars also got three other guys in double figures. Noah Horkler, Justin Minaya, and Nate Watson each with 10 points. Horkler with a double-double grabbing 11 rebounds. A.J. Reeves went scoreless in the game and he only played 19 minutes. 0 for 5 from the floor, 0 for 4 from 3. Bynum got most of the minutes in his place, you know, playing the point while Durham moved to the 2 after, you know, he started the game at point. Durham, 1 of 7 from the floor. 0 for 3 from 3, just 5 points, 3 boards, 4 assists. And then also notably off the bench, you know, Ed Croswell, the only other guy to score. 4 points, 7 boards, 1 of 3 from the floor in 21 minutes. As for Georgetown, Amina Muhammad, 18 points, 7-11 from the floor, and 4 rebounds. And big reason why Georgetown lost, they were 3 for 21 from 3. 
And despite Providence turning it over 20 times, you know, Georgetown turned it over just as much, 19 turnovers. And then Donald Carey had 11 points, but really struggled shooting the rock. One of eight, all from three-point land, but he was eight of eight from the free-throw line. Colin Holloway had nine points, just two points from Dante Harris, and Harris, just a rough day for the sophomore from D.C. 0 of 6 from the floor, got his only points from the free-throw line. And then off the bench, Ryan Matumbo with six points, and then only five points from Caden Rice in 20 minutes, although he was 2 of 9 from the floor, 1 of 7 from 3. So, how about those Friars? 20 and 2 overall with a little over a month away from Selection Sunday. That is absolutely remarkable. I mean, yes, Shaka Smart's done a great job, but I mean, right now, again, if the season were to end today, Ed Cooley would be front runner for Big East Coach of the Year. That's just me being real. And if he keeps it up, he should, especially if they win the regular season crown, Ed Cooley should be coach of the year in the Big East. And it's all dependent on how Providence does down the stretch and kind of how Marquette does down the stretch because Providence, nothing easy coming up. I mean, they got to play Villanova twice. They play Xavier at home, Creighton at home. And then they also got to go play at Butler. And they also play home against DePaul. So with a considerably favorable schedule, because the three games that they won't be making up are against UConn at home, and then road games against Creighton and Seton Hall. Which might have resulted both in L's, if I'm being quite honest. But again, we'll never know because those games aren't going to be played. So... I think I had a pretty good weekend with my picks. I was three for five. The only ones I got wrong, I mean, the Providence Georgetown one, sure. I mean, but I was not expecting to get to Paul Xavier wrong. So I'm at a solid 43 for 61. So five games coming up today and tomorrow. Those picks coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Well, let's get right into it. Midweek picks. Now, there were some were like, okay, I'm I'm a little on the fence. Well, here's what I kind of was getting at. So, doubleheader Tuesday night on FS1, 6:30, XL Center, 18th ranked Marquette, 24th ranked UConn. UConn coming off an 0-2 week. I feel like they're going to come into this game pretty pissed off. And Marquette, you know, I know they're coming off a win against Villanova. They are coming off, you know, also having not played since that game. I think that's more of an advantage for UConn because I feel like, the, you know, they're more in a rhythm compared to Marquette coming off a bye week. I'm going to take UConn beating Marquette at home. I know a lot's changed since the last meeting, which was back in late December, which, you know, was just a few days before Christmas. But in that game, UConn did win, and I know that was Marquette falling to 0-2 in the league with that defeat. But 
I feel like UConn, I'm going to trust them holding serve at home with a win. At Madison Square Garden, Villanova, 15th ranked team in the country at St. John's. Something I am a little bit worried about, are Justin Moore and or Colin Gillespie going to play? It doesn't look like Gillespie is going to because it looked like he really turned his ankle pretty bad. Will Justin Moore be ready to go? I don't know, but if neither of those guys are going to play, that favors St. John's big time. But I, if I know Jay Wright and how his team kind of operates and con, you know conditions themselves, I think at least one of those guys, most likely Moore, will play. And I think Villanova will win a close one in the Garden over the Red Storm. 9 o'clock on CBS Sports Network, Butler at Creighton. You know, Creighton went from the high of beating UConn on the road to getting crushed by Seton Hall in Newark. Butler coming off a difficult, humbling loss at home to St. John's, as well as a tough loss at Xavier earlier in the week. And you know what? This may be surprising. I mean... It's not going to be as surprising as me taking Georgetown over Providence, but I like Butler going into Omaha and beating Creighton. You know, you know, say what you want, but I don't know. That's just that's just what I'm going with. That's just who I'm sticking with. Now, let's go into Wednesday night. This will be a doubleheader on FS1. 7 o'clock, number 25, Xavier at Seton Hall. This should be interesting. Because Seton Hall, you know, is Bryce Aiken going to be available? There's a good chance he might not be because when it comes to concussions... Kevin Willard is very, very delicate about that and very careful with any players of his that develop concussion-like symptoms or straight up have a concussion. And Xavier, they're going to come into this game pissed off because of the fact that they just lost to DePaul. And by the way, as Pat Madden pointed out to me and a lot of other people on Saturday, this game is now the loft to DePaul Bowl. So you got so you got that going on. As funny as it is. Now this one, this is interesting. These two teams did not play at the Prudential Center a year ago. And, well, first of all, because of other circumstances, they were actually supposed to play at Walsh Gymnasium because the Prudential Center was actually taken on January 16th of, the, of last year, And but obviously COVID got in the way, the game wasn't played. And Seton Hall won the only meeting between these two teams at the Cintas Center back on December 30th, 2020. Xavier has won three in a row at the Rock. Do they make it four? It is awfully tough to tell. But, you know what? 
you know, I'm like low key. I'm feeling a little frisky today, I guess. And I know it's going to piss off some Seton Hall people, but I think Xavier will win in Newark. But I'll tell you what, though. With Seton Hall, if they win this game, that'll be huge because that'll be three in a row. That'll get them back to 500 in conference and tie them with Xavier because both teams, if that result happens, will be 6-6 six and six in conference and Seton Hall would be tied, would own the tiebreaker because of the fact that they won head-to-head. And then 9 o'clock on FS1, Georgetown at DePaul. DePaul coming off that win against Xavier at the Cintas Center. Georgetown, I mean, they're reeling. They're 0-10 in conference now. I mean, right now, things just don't look good for the Hoyas. And they only played once last year, which Georgetown, by the way, won. So, this one's a tight one to call. But in the end, DePaul will win. I mean, you would think, like, I mean, on paper, it might be a tough one to call because of the fact that, you know, Georgetown has been playing bad. DePaul might, most likely, will still be without Javon Freeman Liberty. So, will Georgetown take advantage? I don't think they will because DePaul has finally gotten used to playing without Freeman Liberty. And, you know, they got a monster performance from Crevizier McCauley off the bench, which was... A revelation, really. But now the question becomes, you know, was what Macaulay did a fluke? He's good enough to go off for a game like that, as we obviously saw. He he obviously can't do that consistently. But what is going to boil down to? Dominating the interior. You know, guys like Nick Ongenda are going to have to assert their presence against, you know, Timothy Egofe, Ryan Matumbo. And then they're going to have to knock down their threes because Georgetown has multiple three-point weapons in the form of Donald Carey and Caden Rice. And big thing for Georgetown, man, they got to get a lot more out of Dante Harris, the Rainy Biggies tournament MVP. I think his struggles are a big reason why Georgetown's been as bad as they have been. I mean, they're losing by an average of 14.5 points a game in conference play this year. Which is really, really bad. And that's even worse than 2016 St. John's through their first 10 conference losses. That's worse than 2018 St. John's through their first 10 conference losses. So, yeah, I would assume that Georgetown's got to play a heck of a lot better. And obviously, when they get leads, the big thing is they got to not fall apart. And this is going to be like an impromptu icebreaker. I mean, it's kind of like an icebreaker, but also not. But obviously, being 0-10 in conference, there are a lot of concerns being raised by the Georgetown fan base. Despite having that Big East tournament title under his belt last year, is it time for the Hoyas to move on from Patrick Ewing? You know, for 
a program that has developed a very storied history like Georgetown, you know, with a great legacy that was laid by the late, great, big John Thompson. And because of players like Ewing and later on with Morning, Dikembe Mutombo and Allen Iverson, you know, that legacy has been established. I mean, Georgetown's still a household name in college basketball. But to see them 0-10 in conference, I mean, we've seen them be pretty bad. But never this bad. And, you know, the thing that's being said is, you know, for the sake of the program and for them to, you know, actually return to relevancy and not just for a month like they did last March where they won the Big East tournament. They were the talk of the country because they stole tournament bid out of the Big East by stealing the automatic bid. And it was a feel-good story for Patrick Ewing being the head coach of the Hoys and leading his alma mater to a Big East tournament title in the first season for Georgetown, you know, following the passing of John Thompson. So it was for Big John, and that was a big talk, and it was great for the university. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of that probably died out when they lost in their home opener against Dartmouth way back in November, which seems like a decade ago. So, and another thing that I've seen fans mention and people just who follow the team, Georgetown, since the resignation of John Thompson way back in 1999, they haven't seen a lot of progression overall. I mean, they had, yes, they had a Sweet 16 team in 2001 under Eshrick. No, John Thompson III led him to the second weekend in 06 and 07, and in 07, that resulted in a Final Four trip, which was their first since 85, when his father led them to the final four, ultimately, you know, falling short in the national championship. That was the third final four trip in a span of four years, all with Patrick Ewing as their center. But since then, I mean, they've had so many choke jobs just since 2010 in the tournament. Well, actually, since two, since that final four trip, choke jobs in the tournament. In 08, Steph Curry cooked them when he was at Davidson. 2010, which, by the way, I funny enough predicted this upset, when I was 14, when third seed Georgetown got whacked by Ohio in the opening round in Providence. 2011, they got knocked, in the, knocked out in the first round by VCU and Shaka Smart, who went to the final four from the first four. 2012, they were a three seed and got knocked down in the second round by 11th seed at NC State. 2013, they were a two seed, got a share of the Big East regular season title, and they got bounced in the first round by 15th seed Florida Gulf Coast, which we all know now is the Dunk City run. And then since realignment, they've only made the tournament twice. Once in 2015, which was an at-large, and they got bounced as a four seed in the second round by Utah. And then they finally went back last year, but because they got the automatic bid. And they got bounced in the first round by Colorado. And they got blown out 
A lot of that probably had to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of energy was exerted into winning that Big East championship. Four games, four nights. And then they just didn't have enough to go into the NCAA tournament. Combat Colorado. And Colorado just shot the lights out against them. And Georgetown just didn't have enough to combat it. And the and another big thing is the fact that Georgetown and Ewing specifically He's had difficulty making sure important players stay. I mean, let's talk about the guys that he brought in as part of his 2018 recruiting class. The big three of those being James Akinjo, Mac McClung, and Josh LeBlanc. LeBlanc was dismissed from the team. Akinjo left, and McClung dipped after the 2020 season because those two guys were were gone and left for Texas Tech. And then, even after winning a Big East championship, he couldn't get Kudus Wahab to stay, who was all Big East tournament and was probably going to be up there with Nate Watson as arguably the best center in the conference heading into this year. But... Ewing couldn't keep him, and Wahab went just a little bit north to College Park to Maryland. Obviously, that move hasn't really paid off as well as anticipated because Maryland has been nowhere near as good as everyone thought they would be. And Mark Turgeon couldn't even make it through an entire season this year. And then, you know, you lose... A lot of important players from that team that led you to the Big East Championship. You meaning in, in this sense, seniors. Chudier Belay, Jamarco Pickett, and Javon Blair. All of them, you know, finished off, they graduated, and now they're playing professionally with Pickett and Belay. Belay, I, I think, is exclusively in the G League, and Pickett has seen some NBA reps. But, yeah, this is just not a good situation. I mean, you're 0-10 in the conference. You're 6-15 overall. There's a good chance Georgetown won't even make 10 wins this season. Not 10. To, you know, echo, you know, Jim Beheim when he was talking about, you know, how Syracuse would have been without Jerry McNamara in 2006. And, you know, saying we wouldn't have won 10 effing games. Not 10. So that's what, that's, that's what I was referencing. But this is just, it's sad. And also, I mean, just the fact that the, the, the fans, the fans haven't come out. I mean, I, I saw the crowd Tuesday night at Capital One Arena, the picture of it from uh, Jerry Carino, who covers Seton Hall for the Asbury Park Press. Not even, it didn't look like there were 2,000 people there. Apparently there were more than that, but it looked cavernous. Even the game with students only at McDonough Arena, I know apparently there was a capacity limit for that game, but still, you like, like 1,500, if that. Yeah, it, it just sucks. It sucks. Every part of it sucks. But because of the fact that Georgetown is kind of stuck in a conundrum where 
they don't want to ostracize a man who is greatly responsible for bringing their program to prominence back in the 1980s. And that could be a dangerous move to cut ties with them. So, and and the really funny thing is, I mean, the same conundrum happened with John Thompson III. You know, before the hiring of Ewing. So, yeah, Georgetown's between a rock and a hard place, but really, I mean, I, I kind of stand with the fans and agree with them that, you know, in order for Georgetown to get somewhere, they're going to have to move on without Patrick Ewing. And Georgetown's going to have to swallow their pride and have to tell Patrick, unfortunately, tell him how it is. So that does it for this episode of the Igloo. Coming up on Friday, hopefully going to get a Georgetown Creighton preview. Uh, my guess for that, TBD, but I will make sure those details go out ASAP once I get those finalized. So until then, Timmy I signing off from the Igloo. Thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you all Friday to recap the midweek.